Tonight we come into one of the most exciting sections of this book of 1 Corinthians. Beginning with chapter 12, we're going to be talking about the whole issue of spiritual gifts. And there's so much I could say by way of introduction, but I think the wisest thing to do is just to jump right into the study, beginning 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul begins this chapter by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, literally Paul is saying, Now concerning spirituals, you may see it in your Bible where the word gifts is in italics. What that simply means is that the word gifts is not in the original. What Paul is saying is now concerning spirituals. It's interesting because for so much of the letter, Paul has been dealing with issues regarding the carnality of the Corinthian church. They were taking one another to court. They were dividing against one another saying, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. They were uh, making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. They were not respecting God's role for the different genders within the church and leadership and such. And in all this carnality, Paul says, look, I'm done dealing with all these carnal things. Let's talk about spiritual things. And what he's going to talk about is the place of spiritual gifts within the Corinthian church. Now, way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and maybe we should turn back there just to see this passage because it's important. You know, all through the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church has kind of been a whipping boy for us. We've, we've uh, seen all their failings, all their weaknesses, and it's true, there were a lot of problems in the Corinthian church, and we shouldn't gloss it over. Yet they were a church that had some strengths. I want you to notice here, and uh, since I'm kind of doing this free here, I'm looking for the passage where he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever there was in spiritual gifts, the Corinthians weren't coming short in them. There was a full, free expression of the Spirit of God in the Corinthian church. Now, sometimes this expression lapsed off into carnality, but Paul is going to deal with that. What I want you to see was this was a church that was not dead in its expression. This was a church that loved the things of the Spirit of God and the things of the Spirit in general. Now, Paul is going to give them some very pointed encouragement and instruction on how to conduct themselves regarding spiritual gifts. And the first thing he says there about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And it's amazing what ignorance there is about spiritual gifts in the church today. And we'll be talking about a lot of this as we make our way through the chapter. By the way, I should tell you from the get-go, I think I'm only planning on making it through verse 11 here uh, this evening because there's so much for us to talk about regarding these issues of spiritual gifts that I'm not even going to try to take the whole chapter in one evening unless you guys want to be here until about 10, 10.30, and that's fine with me. We've got plenty of tape back at the... Uh, at the uh, recorder, and we can go as long as we please. But typically, I think we'll make through it about verse 11 and be talking just under an hour together here. But in, in, in verse 1, he says that he does not want them to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Um, it's a good reminder for us also. Perhaps we're ignorant of things regarding spiritual gifts, and we should not be. You know, as you go through the New Testament, 
you find three things that Paul says he doesn't want people to be ignorant of. And these three things are things that there's an amazing amount of ignorance in the church even today. He says he didn't want the Christians to be ignorant of God's plan for Israel. That's in Romans chapter 11. And then he says he doesn't want Christians to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. That's here in 1 Corinthians 12. And then later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I want you to be ignorant about the second coming of Christ and what happens to us after we die. And on all three of those areas, this is amazing. There's an, a, a shaming amount of ignorance among Christians today. The very things Paul said, don't be ignorant about, so many Christians are, in fact, ignorant about. Now, in verse 2, he carries on the thought, and he says, You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to remember that they have a past of pagan idolatry. And their past of pagan idolatry perhaps did not prepare them for an accurate understanding of spiritual gifts. Now, I don't know, think of it in these terms. If somebody comes to Jesus Christ from a real new agey kind of background, tarot cards, mysticism, this, that, the other thing, all these kind of, you know, mystical, spiritual kind of things, when they come to an understanding of spiritual gifts, it may be distorted, right? They may take some of the things that they thought were characteristic of spiritual things of their past, and apply them to what they consider to be spiritual things in the present. And I think Paul's telling them, no, you remember your past. You were Gentiles, as he says, carried away to these dumb idols. Now he says dumb, he doesn't mean dumb old idols like that. He means dumb in the sense unable to speak, they're mute. You see, Paul did not want them to be ignorant, but because they were Gentiles, they did come to the issue of spiritual gifts as ignorant. This is something that they needed to be taught about. And friends, perhaps your past teaching, perhaps your past experience have given you a poor understanding of the Holy Spirit and His gifts. It's very easy for some of us to take a materialistic view of the Holy Spirit and His work in the church where it's not spiritual at all. You know, God may be speaking to your heart and laying something on your heart and you think, man, what did I eat for dinner? You know, God, must be, and you think, you're not even thinking in terms of spiritual things. It's a totally materialistic way of thinking. Then again, you may have come from a hyper-spiritual kind of background and you're just, well, can I just, you're just plain superstitious. You wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I got to brush my teeth. You say, the Lord told me to brush my teeth. And it's everything, well, you know, everything is, wow, you know, this or that. And, and everything is hyper-spiritual for you. Now, I just want you to open up your eyes and then consider that your past background, whether it be heavy on the materialistic side, whether it be heavy on the supernatural, or should we say superstitious side, it may not have prepared you well for an accurate understanding of spiritual gifts. So a principle Paul wants to lay out at the very beginning is found in verse 3, where he says, Therefore, I make known to you, that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now here, Paul is laying down a broad principle for understanding regarding things uh, in relevance to spiritual gifts. He says, judge things by how they relate to Jesus Christ. Does a supposed gift glorify Jesus? Does it promote the true Jesus or a false Jesus? If it's of the Spirit of God, it will not call Jesus accursed. If it's of the Spirit of God, it's going to bless. It's going to say that Jesus is Lord. Friends, that's how we measure things by the Spirit of God. By how it relates and glorifies Jesus Christ. 
Friends, Jesus made something very plain. He said that when the Holy Spirit would come, this is what Jesus said in John 15, 26, he said, he, in other words, the Holy Spirit, will testify of me. What is the testimony of the Holy Spirit? Jesus. And this is what else Jesus said in John 16, 14. He said, he, again, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Friends, it's not like Jesus has one message and the Holy Spirit has another one. The message of the Holy Spirit, the message of Jesus is entirely consistent. If you want to know how the Holy Spirit moves and acts and what the character and the nature of the Spirit of God is as He truly and genuinely moves among a group of believers, look at the nature and the character of Jesus Christ as it's revealed in the Gospels. The Holy Spirit will display the nature and the character of Jesus. Now, the nature and the character of Jesus is remarkable to behold. The nature of a servant, the nature of not glorifying oneself, not always predictable, right? Not always easy to understand, but always a sweetness, always a love, always a grace about his doings. Friends, that's how it will be when the Holy Spirit is truly moving. Now, beginning here with verse 4, Paul is going to bring up one of the most important issues in his heart and mind regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, verse 4, Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. I love these verses. I I think this is a remarkable, remarkable thing, both for the broad principle that Paul is drawing. And perhaps we should just say, just in a few months, what the broad principle of verses 4, 5, and 6 is. You saw it there, didn't you? You could teach me this. Paul's saying, look, there might be a lot of differences when it comes to the gift you have, and the gift you have, and the gift I have, and the gift they have. Maybe a lot of differences, but it's all the same spirit, right? That's the message, isn't it? But the specific terminology that Paul uses is very interesting. Notice in verse 4, he says, there are diversities of gifts. All right, that's one term for you, gifts. Then in verse 5, he says, differences of ministries. Gifts, ministries, and then look at what he says in verse 6. Diversities of activities. We have three terms used here. Gifts, ministries, and activities. Well, let's remember the broad principle here that Paul's trying to get home. There is indeed a diversity of gifts, yet there is only one giver of the gifts, and he works throughout all these diverse gifts. But the gifts are diverse, the ministries are different, and the activities are diverse, but it's the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God, doing the work through the gifts, through the ministries, and through the activities. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about ministries? I believe that just because of the word having an idea of a position of service, when Paul uses the term ministries, he's talking about gifted offices within the church. He elaborates on this a great deal in Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and so forth. He says, God has given these gifted offices to the church. I think that's what he's talking about. Now, 
if I could sort of diagram this for you on a chart, I would say the term gifts in verse 4 encompasses ministries, and it also encompasses the term he uses in verse 6, activities. The Greek word for activities is energimata, energy. It's where we get our words energy, energetic, and energized from. It's a word of active, miraculous power. Differences of activities means that God displays and pours out his miraculous power in different ways, but it's always the same God doing the work. In other words, I think Paul is telling us that there's basically two kinds of spiritual gifts. You have gifts mentioned in verse 4. That's the overarching term. Then one kind of gift is a ministry. That's kind of an office or a position. He has the gift of, an, uh, of a pastor, a gift of an evangelist, a gift of a teacher. That's more like a standing office. That's a position. But not all spiritual gifts are like that. Not only do you have ministries, but you also have activities. And activities has in mind a miraculous supernatural working of power. Now, I think he's going to go on and talk to us about these activities in the following verses. And again, let's just point out that all of these are gifts. Some gifts are ministries and some gifts are activities. There is a difference between the operation of these gifts. Now, before we go on to verse 7 and talk about this, we need to really press home to our heart this emphasis that Paul draws that though there is a diversity of gifts, a diversity of ministries, a diversity of activities, it's all the same spirit. It's very easy for us to focus on our own little area of gifts, ministries, or activities. And to believe that people who have other gifts, people who have other ministries, people who have other activities, well, they're not really walking with God, right? I'll just use an example, and I don't mean to pick out this particular group, or maybe I do mean to pick out this particular group. I, I haven't really decided yet in my mind, but I'll just say that uh, take somebody who believes that they have the gift of evangelism. Now, in my experience with people who believe they have the gift of evangelism, they spend some considerable amount of time evangelizing, and they spend another considerable amount of time whining and groping and, and, and just complaining that more people aren't involved in evangelism. And it's like, why isn't everybody else? Why not? Why is this? Well, it's just very typical for somebody who has that gift to think that that's what everybody should be doing, right? They're not seeing the diversity. Well, it's the same thing with a pastor who thinks that everybody in his church should be a Bible scholar, right? Or the, the missionary who thinks everybody should be a missionary. Or the person who has the gift of help who thinks everybody should be out there. You know, the, the idea is, whatever my ministry is, well, that's what the body of Christ is all about, and everybody should be doing that. Friends, there's a difference. And the difference is given by the Holy Spirit. Now, God uses these differences. Right? Because, uh, let's say this dear brother or sister over here who has the gift of evangelism. Now, I may not have the gift of evangelism, but I need to be doing the work of an evangelist, right? And I need to let that brother spur me on to let God use me in that area, don't I? But if he gets all whiny and discouraged and mopey about it, then he's not walking in the Spirit. He just has to realize, look, I'm one part of the body of Christ. And God has me to do my role and just encourage other people to do it. 
But I realize that God has given other peoples other gifts and other enablings. So it's very important that God has a glory, to see that God has a glorious diversity in the way that he does things. We should never expect it to be all according to our own emphasis or our own taste. Now, one other thing I want you to see, and it's just sort of a glorious thing that I noticed before we go on to verse 7. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6 again, and I want you to notice just for a minute the way that the doctrine of the Trinity is just woven into the New Testament. I mean, nowhere in the New Testament are you going to find this explicit layout of the, you know, well, it's this, 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 and this, this. It's just woven within the text. Look at it, verse 4. Diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 5, diversity of ministries, but the same Lord. That's a reference to Jesus. Look at verse 6. Diversity of activities, but it is the same God, a reference to God the Father. He's talking about all the same thing, right? He's not trying to say, well, it's the Spirit in charge of gifts and Jesus in charge of ministries and God the Father in charge of of activities. No, he's just saying it's the Lord in charge of it all. But he just weaves the idea of the Trinity into the the very fabric of the New Testament. Now, verse 7. Here he's going to be talking about the varieties of the manifestations of the Spirit. This is an explanation of what he meant on activities. When he starts talking in verse 7, He's not talking about gifts in terms of ministries, in terms of offices. He'll talk more about that at another time. Verse 7 focuses on the thought that we were left with in verse 6 of being different activities, that is, workings of power within the body of Christ. Now look at it here in verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to each one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. I love these verses. You know I love them, because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about just these verses. And there's a lot here for us to talk about. Notice how he begins in verse 7. He says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Now, do you know what it means to make something manifest, or to say the manifestation of the Spirit? When something is made manifest, it is clear, it's evident, it's visible. You can see it. Now, If something is not manifest, it doesn't mean that it's not there. It just means you can't see it. Give me an example. Here's my Bible. Now, if I move my Bible behind the pulpit, it is not manifest. Is it still there? Yes. But I can say now, this is the manifestation of my Bible. I've lifted it up and you can see it. It's visible. It's noticeable. Now, it's the same way with the manifestation of the Spirit. Paul is going to talk to us about ways that the Holy Spirit is manifested. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit is not there when these things are not there. These are just ways that the Holy Spirit makes himself visible, makes himself known. The Holy Spirit's presence may be more apparent at other times, because there may be times when he chooses to manifest himself, but... We should never think that the Holy Spirit is more present when he's manifested by the gifts. The Holy Spirit is always present with believers. But at times, he is more apparent through the manifestation of the Spirit. 
Now notice this, he says in verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit, this making visible of the Holy Spirit, is given to each one, why? For the profit of all. Why does the Holy Spirit make himself evident through these gifts? For the edification, for the building up, for the blessing of the entire church. Now, Paul will go on now in verse 8 to list different ways that the Holy Spirit is manifested. Now, as you go through the New Testament, you'll find in different books, you'll find in Romans, you'll find in Ephesians, you'll find in 1 Corinthians, different listings of spiritual gifts. And the lists differ from place to place and from book to book. And I think part of what that's teaching us is that there is no exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. I don't think Paul was ever intending to make a complete inventory of what God can do in spiritual gifts but I think he's giving us a good outline, a good starting point. So now he begins here, verse 7. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. Now, in verse 8 there, he's talking about the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. What is the word of wisdom? Well, it would seem to be the unique ability to speak forth the wisdom of God, especially in an important situation. I think of an amazing place where the word of wisdom was given was to the Apostle Paul when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin. Apostle Paul was on trial before the Sanhedrin, and it looked like they were going to kill him, and it looked like uh, his ministry was going to be cut short very soon, and he was going to go home to be to glory. And he had uh, no sense that God wanted him home at this particular time, so he was going to do what he could to get out of it. And I think God gave him a word of wisdom at that notice, and he said, bring up the issue of the resurrection. Because though everybody in that room didn't like Paul, some of them liked the idea of the resurrection, and some of them didn't. And so Paul says, well, let's bring up this issue. And he brings it up, and, you know, it's, uh, it's a whole big issue, and the, the members of the Sanhedrin start fighting among themselves, and some, suddenly some are defending Paul. And so they, they do that, and they, well, I don't see anything wrong with this fellow, and they goes on, and, and I think God gave him unique wisdom at that moment to get himself out of the situation. That's an example of the word of wisdom. The Holy Spirit giving you a direct uh, or uh, not direct probably isn't the best word, uh, the Holy Spirit giving you uh, the, the sense, the inclination, speaking to your heart about a, a particular wise course of action or a wise thing to say, and you're able to say it, and you're expressing the wisdom of God. You're being a channel for the wisdom of God. Now, right away when we start talking about this, many people wonder about the, the technicalities of this. How does this happen? You know, do you hear a voice from heaven? This is the word of wisdom for you, my child. Listen to me now. Do you start shaking? Do you just take the first thing that pops into your mind and say that's from the Lord? How do you know when God is speaking to you? Well, I think it takes time, it takes attention, but it takes a lot of discernment to know when the Lord is speaking to you, and might I say that it takes a lot of humility. Don't be quick to say that the Lord is speaking to you. Let the Lord justify his word in retrospect. There have been many occasions in my life where 
I had an impression that this was the right thing to say or the right thing to do, and so I said it or I did it at the moment. But without any heavy foreboding sense, this is the word of God. I didn't change the way I talked when I said it. I didn't start speaking in King James, you know. My beloved childeth, the Lordeth loveth, you his sheepeth. You know, you know, none of that. But in retrospect, you see that that was a word of wisdom from God. I think oftentimes we expect the Lord to work in us in an overly supernatural, perhaps even superstitious way. And the Lord works in us usually in a very smooth way, and it's evidence to be of God afterwards. So don't get so hung up on wanting some absolute proof that it's of God. You know, what do you want God to do? You know, write a contract and have it notarized that this is really from him before you share it with somebody? Yeah, well, some of us do want that. But it's not going to happen. God wants you to be bold and to to step out. So that's the word of wisdom. It's a word of supernatural wisdom. Now, the word of knowledge is something different. This is the unique ability to declare knowledge which could only be revealed supernaturally. For example, Jesus displayed this in his ministry, did he not? When, for example, the Bible says he knew the secrets of men's hearts, he had the word of knowledge at that moment. And Paul did at certain times as well, too. He could look at a woman and know that she was demon-possessed even though she was saying the right things about Paul. Uh, I, I think of the word of knowledge in, uh, in uh, the life of a guy I greatly admire, Charles Spurgeon. He was converted basically through a word of knowledge in that he walked into a, uh, a uh, church. He was intending to go to another church, but it was a snowy day and he couldn't really get through the street. So he just kind of ducked into this old primitive Methodist church. And those were kind of like the holy rollers in his day. And it was so snowy and cold outside that the uh, regular preacher didn't show up, so it was just some illiterate layman who stood up. And this guy was so illiterate, he was so uh, you know, raw in his abilities as a preacher, that all he could do is talk about the text. He couldn't go on and do a fancy sermon. All he could do is stick to the Bible. And so he had as his sermon a text, a text from Isaiah, look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. And he just emphasized the point over and over. Look at me and be saved. That's all you need to do. You need to look and look at me. Look at not the preacher himself. It's the Lord saying that. And at one point in the sermon, he stopped. And he looked at Charles Spurgeon. And he said, young man, you're miserable. And you're lost in sin. And you're never going to find anything different until you look unto Jesus. Look unto him. And Spurgeon said that his heart was just pierced. It was a divine word of knowledge for him at that moment that that's the condition that his heart was in. Now, this aspect of the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, I think that this works very naturally in a a well-appointed ministry of preaching and teaching. It it happens quite frequently. And and I'm sure that its occurrence is much more than, than people talk to me about. But where I might be greeting people at the end of a service on Sunday morning, and they look at me sometimes with tears in their eyes, and they say, you were speaking exactly to what I was going through this week. I've had people accuse me of following them around. (laughs) 
uh, or, you know, calling up on them or such. And obviously it's none of that. And, and I'll be unaware to what's, you know, they usually think I know. Oh, yeah, you know what part of the sermon was really speaking to me, you know. I don't know. It's a work of the Spirit of God. And oftentimes I'll find, you know, when it's my habit, and I think this is an important general guideline for somebody if they're going to be a preacher or a teacher, you need to be prepared. Don't, don't you get up in the pulpit and not be prepared. Don't you waste the time of God's people by not working hard to prepare something for them ahead of time. One guy told me about this uh, hyper-Pentecostal church they used to go to as a boy where the, the pastor would never prepare his sermons because that was unspiritual. He'd get them right from the Lord. And they knew when he would get them because during the last hymn, he'd be back on the platform in the back chair shaking and jerking uncontrollably, and that's when he was getting the sermon. And no wonder he was convulsing because that's about how bad the messages were. <laughs> well, friends, don't you waste the time of God's people by being ill-prepared. But then again... You better be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as you're preaching. And there needs to be an openness to the spontaneity of whatever impression that the Holy Spirit will give you. And I'll say that oftentimes the very best things I have to say in a message come to me quite spontaneously, I believe, by the Spirit of God, sometimes in a word of wisdom, sometimes in a word of knowledge. It's just a, a supernatural thing. And oftentimes I'll find that at the door when people are you know, saying, wow, that really hit, me, hit my heart, oftentimes it's those spontaneous things that I've said. And it's just the Holy Spirit doing that work. Now look, I, I suppose that I could make a big display of it, right? And for some people that would be very comforting. They think that because a big display is not being made about the things of the Spirit, well then the Spirit's not moving. So, you know, according to their thinking, what I should do, and I've seen this done, turns my stomach i've seen it done you know the the preacher's talking it was huh what's that lord uh-huh yeah uh-huh okay and then he goes on oh yeah don't tell me you haven't seen that on the tv it just turns your stomach well that's the most arrogant spiritual proud ostentatious display of of you know i Let's move on. <laughs> anyway, the point is, is that gifts such as the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, can operate in a very natural context. And the way you can tell that those gifts are being effectively operated by the Holy Spirit isn't by some display being made of them, but by the fruit of what's happening. When the people leave the teaching of the word of God, with burning hearts because the Holy Spirit has touched them, then there's been something supernatural going on with the ministry of the Holy Spirit there. And he's been ministering in the word of knowledge and in the word of wisdom. Now, this is not a gift that's simply resigned to the pulpit, though. You know, when you're praying with somebody, when you're ministering to somebody, God may give you a specific uh, word of wisdom or word of knowledge for them. Now, might I say that if that's the case, you don't need to over-dramatize it either, do you? You don't need to say, stop, wait a minute, yes, Lord, yes. If it's foolish for a preacher to do it, it'd be foolish for you to do it. Just minister to that person sweetly and responsively to what the Lord's speaking to your heart. But you don't need to do anything to glorify yourself or your own spiritual status. Just minister to them and let the Lord demonstrate that it's his work, that it's his spirit doing the job by the sweetness of the fruit that comes forth. Now, 
There's another thing that I have to say about the word of knowledge, too. Is that we must always use discernment in receiving a word of knowledge. Sometimes there's instances in, where somebody who uh, maybe um, puts himself forth as having a great ministry in the word of knowledge, he will uh, go through the crowd and start telling people things all about him. And that's really blowing people's minds, you know. You know, you grew up in, in you know, Long Island, New York, and you lived in a blue house, and, you know, you rode a red bike, and, you know, this and that. And the person's blown away because the secrets of their heart or whatever revealed. And first of all, they're scared to death because they think the next thing they're going to do is reveal the sin they committed last week. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, this, and, and what, what I want to point out by this is simply to say that just because you see somebody do that, if you ever occasion on that, don't automatically assume that it's the Spirit of God. Don't shut down your discernment. A lot of times, somebody will see something like that that is genuinely impressive. Are we agree that it's impressive? I mean, whether it's from God or not, it's impressive. But they see something so impressive that they just shut off their discernment. Friends, can I tell you that God is not the only source of supernatural knowledge? To put it bluntly, the devil knows what color house that person lived in, too. And God is not the only source of supernatural knowledge. Now, I don't say this to frighten you, just to say, don't turn your discernment off. Just because somebody gives an impressive uh, word of supernatural knowledge, it's no time to turn your discernment off. Just keep discerning things by the Spirit of God. Well, going on here now, he says, For to each one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Well, the gift of faith, what's that? Well, I don't think he's talking about the gift of faith that every Christian receives. You know, every, if you don't receive a gift of faith from God, you're not a Christian, are you? It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You can't be a Christian without receiving a gift of faith from God. But I think that's not what he's talking about. I think he's talking about, again, a manifestation of the Spirit, a gift of remarkable faith that God gives somebody. Faith to believe God in a particular time, in a particular place, that just goes way beyond the normal expectation. And friends, we walk by faith, I trust. But there may be a time where God just calls you to, I don't know, jump out in faith. And you receive a particular empowering by the Holy Spirit to do it at that moment. I think there's some amazing examples of this. Think of Peter walking on the water. Now, you know what? It took faith to believe that Jesus would calm the storm, right? I think that's enough faith for you or me, right? What kind of faith did it take to step out and walk on that water? Friends, that is just an amazing supernatural faith. And I believe at that moment, God gave Peter the gift of faith. I'll give you another example. How about Peter and John at the gate beautiful, when there is this lame man, and he says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he didn't just say it. What did he do? Picked him up and he pulled him to his feet. Now, friends, unless God has given you a supernatural faith to believe him at that moment that he's going to heal that person, and you just have a supernatural empowering to believe that you know that you know that you know that, that God's going to do it, don't do it. But God gave Peter that faith. 
you know, one of the most amazing stories that I, I heard uh, Pastor Chuck share from his own life, and it's been many years since I've heard this, so I, I hope I could be forgiven if I get some of the details wrong, but as I remember the story, he was doing ministry years and years and years ago in Arizona, and he was at a meeting, and uh, he was there, and his son was there. His son was just a boy at the time, and uh, after the meeting, they were having people come up for prayer, and a guy came up in a wheelchair who wanted prayer, and his, I don't know, sister or mom or aunt or somebody was bringing him up. A couple ladies were bringing the guy up for prayer, and Chuck saw this guy, and at that moment, you know, the guy there, he's praying for people, he's bringing them up for prayer. At that moment, God just gave Chuck the gift of faith and told him, I'm going to heal this guy. You pull him up out of the wheelchair. And he did it, and the guy was healed. Boom. Whatever it was, it put him in the wheelchair. He started get up, dance. It was just amazing. I mean, it was a real, legit, amazing healing. And the, 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 the two people who brought him up were just sobbing. They were saying, we brought him up because he had a cold. <laughs> you know, and that's all they were figuring God wouldn't do. And, you know, it's just amazing. So anyway, Chuck was there for several evenings doing a meeting. And lo and behold, what do you think shows up the next night? Well, I don't know if it was, a, but more people in a wheelchair, at least one other guy in a wheelchair. And it, as I remember the story, and again, I hope I have the details right, uh, uh, Pastor Chuck's son said to him, hey, Dad, how about it? Well, and Chuck gave the right answer, no. God hasn't given me the gift of faith to do this. It's not like something you just do at your own will. If God gives me the gift of faith at that moment, just a, a supernatural faith and trust that, yes, now's the time, now's the place, he's going to do it, I'll step out and do that, but not otherwise. It's not something you do on your own initiative. Now he goes on in verse 9, and he talks about gifts of healing. This is God's healing power. Now, a gift of healing may be the gift uh, where by which somebody perhaps... Uh, ministers healing unto you, or you receive a healing from God. If you receive a healing, that's a gift of healing from God, right? A gift of healing for you. Or perhaps if God uses you through your prayer, through what, or to minister uh, healing to somebody else, then it's a remarkable thing. And so we find this exemplified so many times in the Bible. It's just uh, almost redundant to go through it, but gifts of healing. Now in verse 10, he says, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Well, here he's talking about the working of miracles. Literally, it's talking about the working of acts of power. This seems to be those, I don't know, amazing situations when the Holy Spirit chooses, if you will, to override the laws of nature. You know, it's like God has the universe running on automatic pilot, right? He has principles in there, gravity, laws of equilibrium, you know, this or that. It's just kind of going along, and that's fine. That's the way God has engineered the universe. But God can flip the switch and put the controls on manual any time, right? And do what he pleases. So the working of miracles is a spiritual gift. And then he goes on to say prophecy here, to another prophecy. Now, prophecy is important for us to understand what it is and what it is not. Prophecy is not exclusively telling the future, though it may have a predictive element to it. Literally, the idea behind prophecy in the Bible is to tell forth God's word. It's to speak forth a word from the heart and the mind of God, always in accordance with his word, always in accordance with his current work. 
Sometimes this has the character of foretelling the future, but other times it does not. Now, there's something that's very significant issue here, and we'll get into it in a few minutes, but the, there are some people who wish to define prophecy as just good preaching. You know, anytime somebody's speaking forth from the Bible and it's good, that well, you know, that he's, that, that's prophecy. He was ministering in the gift of prophecy. I think that's a common way to define it, but it's inaccurate. Can I just tell you that there's a Greek word for preaching, and Paul doesn't use it here? If he wanted to say preaching, why didn't he say preaching? He didn't want to say preaching. He wanted to say prophecy. He uses the Greek word for divinely inspired speech. Now again, in using this word for divinely inspired preach and not prophecy, excuse me, and not preaching, it's, we understand that good spirit-anointed preaching will often use the spontaneous gift of prophecy. Listen, friends, I know that when I'm behind the pulpit, when I'm preaching, when I'm flowing with the Spirit of God and what He does, God will put things on my heart to say that, you know, it's just, it's just, right, ought to say, it's just right from Him. That's all there is to it. It's just right from the Lord. And I'm not, you know, again, I'm not going to stop and say, what, Lord? Yeah, what was that? I mean, that's dumb. <laughs> but it's just right from the Lord, and, and you see it. And, and sometimes I'm just standing back and going, man, that's good. You know, I'm thinking, that's, wow, Lord, yeah, that's something. And, you know, I'm just going to go, thank you, Lord, is what I'm thinking in my mind. And I think that true good preaching has a prophetic element to it. But it's not the same thing as prophecy. And going on, he says, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits. This is the ability to tell the difference between true and false doctrine and what's of the Holy Spirit and what's isn't. Can I tell you that there is no more needed gift in the body of Christ today than the gift of discerning of spirits? When you see the amount of just nonsense that goes on in the body of Christ... It said it's the Spirit of God. When you see people from, from supposedly respected ministries get up and say that God has told them what God smells like and told them what the devil smells like, isn't there, any, isn't there anybody in these churches that has discernment of spirits that just say, You're nuts! <laughs> So it's such a necessary gift. And I think one of the most neglected gifts in the body of Christ today is the discernment of spirits. Now he goes on to say, and here he deals with a very controversial one to conclude with in verse 10. He says, to another, different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. Well, what is the gift of tongues? Well, over the next several weeks, we'll be talking a great deal about the gift of tongues. But let me give you kind of an overview, since it's the first place we bring it up here in the uh, book of, of 1 Corinthians. The gift of tongues is a personal language of prayer given by God, whereby the believer can communicate with God beyond the limits of knowledge and understanding. When a person is praying in tongues, they are praying spontaneously with words and phrases that come into their mind. It's not automatic speaking. It's not as if they just kind of open their mouth and, well... Boy, there's so much we can talk about because there's just an amazing amount of... 
Um, uh, you know, some people teach that you, you learn how to speak, the, speak in tongues by just opening your mouth and start shaking your tongue around and, you know, and then God will make it happen. Or, you know, what a bunch of nonsense. How, how do you speak in your regular language? You, words and phrases and thoughts come into your mind and you express them in speech. Well, it's the same thing with the gift of tongues, except you're expressing them in a speech that you don't know. And you don't know what you're saying when you pray in the gift of tongues. But God knows. God knows. Now, language is an agreement between, well, if I'm talking with somebody in the English language, we have an agreement. We have an agreement of what the word dog means, right? Dog represents something. It could be a chihuahua, it could be a St. Bernard. But we have, when I say dog, we kind of have an agreement that that sound, that those letters, it means something. You agree to it, I agree to it, that's how language works. If you're talking in a different language, I came back from vacation in Sweden not too long ago, dog in Swedish is hund. So, you know, in Swedish they agree that hund means, you know, same thing as dog, but it's a different language. But that's fine, because if you both speak Swedish, you have this agreement, right? Well, the gift of tongues is an agreement between you and God. You and God agree, he understands what you're talking about, and you agree not to understand, but to believe that the Holy Spirit is praying exactly what needs to be prayed. Whether it's the most beautiful expression of joyful praise or the deepest sense of grieving and intercession, whatever it is, you agree that the Holy Spirit needs or is praying uh, what needs to be prayed. Now, some of us might stand back and honestly, you might be saying, why would anybody want such a thing? Why? Well, let me say that if you have never felt limited, constrained by your ability to talk to God in the English language, then you don't need the gift of tongues. If you feel that you have no problem whatsoever talking to God with the vocabulary that you have, that's fine. But can I tell you that there may come a day when you feel that your heart is so full of praise, is so full of grief, is so full of wonder, is so full of care, that you do not have the words to articulate it. You don't know what to say before God. That's when you should seek God for the gift of tongues. Because the gift of tongues is not a tool to communicate between man to man. The gift of tongues is a tool to communicate between man and God. Now, Whenever tongues are practiced, and we'll be seeing this in a great deal of detail later on, whenever tongues are practiced in the corporate life of the church, it's to be carefully controlled and never without an interpretation. In other words, since tongues is talking between the individual and God, most of the time it's inappropriate for somebody to get up and talk to God in the middle of the church service. Just as much as it might be inappropriate for you to get up and just carry on your own conversation to God in the middle of the church service. Now, Paul says that because nobody else will understand what you're saying if you pray aloud in tongues, you should either keep quiet and pray to yourself. By the way, a very important principle for us whenever we're talking about spiritual gifts is that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. If you have some 
dear sister, dear brother, standing up and shouting out and screaming at the top of their lungs in tongues in the middle of the pastor's message. And they say, I'm sorry, the Spirit just came over me. Say, no, that wasn't the Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit is not like a demonic spirit. You know, it's demonic spirits that twist your arm and make you do things against your will. That's what being demon-possessed is about. But the Spirit of God doesn't work that way. He operates with a sweetness and subject to our own spirits. In any regard, when tongues are practiced in the corporate life of the church, it's only to be done if there's an interpretation. Then somebody might be blessed by the praise you give to God or the prayer you offer if they can interpret supernaturally what you just said and interpret it in the language everybody can understand. We're going to see later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the ability to pray in an unknown tongue is not a gift that's given to every believer. Paul makes that very clear. And another thing I have to say about the gift of tongues that's very important, that the ability to pray in a tongue is not the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this has been a point that's misled many people. Oftentimes in the book of Acts, where people are dramatically filled with the Holy Spirit, they also speak in tongues, but not every time. And a dangerous doctrine has come up from this, the doctrine that you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. Now, what's so bad about this teaching? Is it bad to encourage people to seek the gift of tongues? No, that's not bad. But it's bad to encourage people to seek the gift of tongues for the wrong reason. When you make the gift of tongues the measuring stick for whether or not you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then why am I seeking the gift of tongues? To prove to myself and to prove to you that I'm really baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't care about any deeper communication with God. Who cares about that? I want to show myself and I want to show you that I really got it. And so that's led to an awful lot of counterfeiting and and discouragement with the gift of tongues. Now, Many people believe that the gift of tongues died with the apostles. And curiously, many of the people who believe this define the gift of tongues as merely the ability to speak in other languages for the purpose of spreading the gospel. That's what many people say. Oh, well, look, he learns other languages so easily he has the gift of tongues. Sometimes you'll hear that in church circles. Friends, that's not the gift of tongues at all. Because the Bible makes it very clear. That the gift of tongues is not for speaking from man to man, it's for speaking from man to God. That's what the gift of tongues is all about. Matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost, when the gift of tongues was first given, and there they are, and uh, they're, they're there, and they're all speaking in tongues, and, and they're there speaking, and the bystanders hear them, many people assume that what the people were doing when they're speaking on the day of Pentecost was that they were preaching to the crowd in these unknown tongues. Nonsense! When it came time to preach to the crowd, Peter stood up and preached in Greek. They all knew Greek! There was no reason to use all these unknown tongues to preach to them. No, friends, what they were doing, and the Bible makes this very clear in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, it says that they heard them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. The people on the day of Pentecost were praising God. They were talking to God in their unknown tongues, and they were so excited that the people around them heard them. That's what the commotion was all about. 
When it came time to speak to the people, Peter spoke in Greek because they all understood Greek. Friends, the Bible clearly says that the gift of tongues is meant for an individual's communication with God, not with man. Now, if that's true, can we say that there's any less of a need for us to communicate with God today? I don't believe so, my friends. Now, oftentimes, those who speak in tongues today are mocked by those who deny the gift with the accusation that they're speaking gibberish. I don't know if you've ever heard that kind of accusation. Well, it's just nonsense. You know, look, it's blah, 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 blah. You may as well just be saying that. And Acts chapter 2 is oftentimes wrongly used to support this because they say, well, look, in Acts chapter 2, they were all speaking in tongues that everybody else could understand. In other words, what they were saying is that if somebody is truly speaking in tongues, it's going to be a language that somebody probably right there in the room could understand. That's the whole reason for the gift of tongues. But again, what's wrong about that? It's thinking that tongues is speaking man to man. That's not what tongues is speaking about. It's from speaking from man to God. But friends, do you realize how many people were speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost? About 120 And how many different distinct languages are mentioned as being heard? Oh, about 10, 12. Do you think that there were people speaking in languages that were unknown? Absolutely. I bet some of those 120. And what would it sound like in your ears if I were to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, in ancient Aztec? Would you have any idea what I was saying? Not at all. To you, it, sound, it would sound like gibberish. It would sound like nonsense. But if there happened to be some, and, and we don't even stop to consider how many dead languages there are in the world. You know, a lot of times we think, well, the gift of tongues, God must give them, you know, Hebrew or French or this. And there's wonderful stories that people tell about, you know, other people having the gift of tongues and being able to speak just beautifully in other languages that they've never been taught. But friends, I think a lot of times, if God gives a a definite language to somebody, it may be a dead and extinct language. Friends, they may be praising God in a language that's completely unknown, yet human, or they could be giving a completely unique language given to them by God. What's the difference? What gift of tongues is all about, it's between the individual and God, and they're speaking to the Lord. And the repetition of simple phrases, unintelligible and perhaps nonsensical by human standards, does not mean that such speaking is gibberish. Do you understand that praise to God can be, uh, praise to God can be very simple? How about if you were to take some ancient Mayan dialect and just say to the Lord over and over again, help me, help me, help me. Somebody might go, well, that's not a language. That's just gibberish. No, but it's a genuine tongue heard by God, and God knows exactly what the person is saying. Well, coming through here, he says different kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. This allows the gift of tongues to be for the benefit of those other than the speaker. Now, there's actually a lot more that I could say here on verse 11, and that we will pick it up uh, with next time, but... What I want you to notice is a couple things here with verse 11. He says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he 
wills. You see, friends, apparently, apparently there was this great tendency to divide among the Corinthian Christians. And maybe they had kind of divided into different camps in the church. Well, there's the tongue speakers over there, and there's the prophesiers over there, and there's the, these people over here. And you know what Paul said? You know what? Hey, it's all the, Holy, the same Holy Spirit. Come together. It's the same Spirit of God. It's one and the same Spirit. But please notice this. It's distributing to each one individually as he wills. Friends, who determines who gets a spiritual gift? God. It's as he wills. Now, is it wrong to seek God for a spiritual gift? No. But you just leave it in his hands. Now, can we talk just for a minute about something that I think is very important to understand in the body of Christ? If gifts are given by God as he wills, we need to understand and appreciate that God's ways and God's will and God's wisdom is often very different than ours. God may bestow remarkable spiritual gifts on somebody that we think is very unworthy. And can I say that when I see that, it just drives me crazy. I say, Lord, what are you doing? But that's why he's God and why I'm not. He knows what he's doing. He knows. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. And I'll just leave it up to him. Now, oftentimes we assume, and might I say that this is the tendency of people who have spiritual gifts to promote this understanding. We assume that because a person has spiritual gifts, they must be closer to God. They must be especially mature. I think of individuals that I've known in my lifetime who have had amazing spiritual gifts and were carnal, immature believers, very low in their character before God. And you sit back and you scratch your head and you say, Lord, why did you pour those gifts out upon them? And you know what? I don't know. That's God's business. But he distributed those gifts as he wills. Friends, you should never assume that giftedness equals maturity. God may give an individual spiritual gifts and may use their spiritual gifts. Now, let's also understand this. Giftedness does not qualify a person for office in the church. Do you realize the criteria that Paul uses in Titus and in uh, 1 Timothy for uh, those people who should hold leadership positions in the church? He never science says, finds the most gifted people. He says, look for people who are mature, who have character. Because God can pour out spiritual gifts on a person in a moment. Maturity and character take time to develop within a person's life. So friends, he does it individually as he wills. I understand that the reasons why God does it may not be apparent. We may sit back and schedule, Lord, what are you, Lord, are you sure on this one? But you know what he is. He knows what he's doing. And so we just receive them. He distributes and we receive. Now, we're going to have a time of worship. And I trust that God has given people here spiritual gifts. We're going to be talking a lot about spiritual gifts in the coming weeks. But what I want you to think about is, I have a sense that oftentimes when we have a time of worship after Bible study on Wednesday night, that many times what hinders people from speaking out a word that the Lord may lay on their heart, sharing a scripture, giving an expression of thanks or praise to God that the Lord would pour out on their heart, I think a lot of times what makes a person not do that 
is they don't feel worthy. They feel kind of disqualified. Can I just tell you, your worthiness doesn't have anything to do with it. If God wants to, can I just tell you that if God wants to use you, don't you cheat me. God wants to use you to minister to me. Don't you cheat me. You may not be worthy, but don't cheat me. I want some of that ministry that the Lord wants to pour through you. Listen, if God could speak through Balaam's ass, he could speak through us, right? So friends, God can do a great work. But you just have to be able to say, listen, Lord, you can use me, God. I'm willing. I don't have to be the most spiritual person in this room because that doesn't have anything to do with it. I'm willing, and if you want to use me, here I am.